0: EM Board Bombs. Now, here's doctors Iltafat Hussein and Blake Briggs. Welcome back to another EM Board Bombs podcast, where board setting is now enjoyable. I'm Blake Briggs, M.D., and I'm joined today by the illustrious... Dr. hussein comment
1: hello
0: for each 10 to 15 of an episode you gain high yield board knowledge as we like to say come for the stem stay for the content you can sign up on our website at em board bombs find us on twitter at em board bombs dr hussein are you ready for today's topic we got a special topic today special topic it's special a true history. story true story true stories hashtag it happened it happened story time with the em board bombs Hold on to
1: your butts. The year is 1916. It is the height of the Great War, also known as World War One. The Allied and Central Powers have been at it for two years with no end in sight. The shocking use of new technology machine guns and old war tactics of rushing the front line have contributed to millions of deaths. The influenza pandemic is on the horizon and will result in over- almost hundred million deaths in two years time it's a horrible time to be alive three <laughs> French doctors are taking care of two soldiers who present with lower leg weakness these soldiers show acute motor paralysis and a reflexia their LP shows increased protein levels with a normal cell count both soldiers recover without issues these three doctors Report their findings of this fascinating neurological disorder and these three doctors names are Guion, Bure, and Stroll And they published their findings in a French journal that I cannot pronounce <laughs> Dr. Stroll is listed as the second author but alas Dr. Stroll's name is omitted from the history books. Oh Dun, dun, dun By the way, Guillaume Bray did not name this after themselves. It was named in subsequent literature papers decades later, but Stroll's name was taken out. No. Which of the following is true regarding this condition? A, electromyography helps determine disease prognosis. B, most cases are idiopathic. C, respiratory distress is rarely seen. D, incontinence is not typically seen. D negative inspiratory force less than 100 is associated with impending respiratory failure. Dr. Briggs, what's the correct answer?
0: Correct answer here is D, incontinence is not typically seen with this condition.
1: Ooh, this is a good
0: <laughs> Today's podcast is in memory of Dr. Stroll.
1: Hey, shout out to Dr. Stroll. We're bringing you back. Bring we still you remember back. you. We still remember you, bro. <laughs>
0: Thanks, bro. <brah. laughs> All right, we're talking about acute inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, otherwise known as Guillain-Barre-Stroll disease. Exactly. That's right. It's the most common cause of acute flaccid paralysis in children in the post-polio era. Interesting, right? I had a patient the other day, actually, that was an adult who had polio. She was like 90.
1: Oh, wow. And okay. yeah, I, was say, I, I was hoping you weren't going to say she was 40, so that's yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. She just does a CBD oil. All right, so (laughs) progressive symmetric muscle weakness is the hallmark of this disease, and most doctors know this, uh, and most ER doctors know this, of course. You have this progressive, rising, ascending symmetric muscle weakness, and two other features of this disease that's classic are absent or depressed deep tendon reflexes and the lack of sensory findings. Right. What's the epidemiology on this? This is a rare condition. We all know that was like, right. one to two cases per, like, 100,000 worldwide. And the cause of this is what, Dr. saying. What are we dealing with here? Uh, this is where one of the answer choices was wrong.
1: Right. So you're looking at immune-mediated peripheral neuropathy, peripheral, again, neuropathy caused by myelin sheath destruction. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the other answer choices here, we talked about, you know, idiopathic causes. Around 60% of them have some sort of URI or GI infection that happened before. Um, In this particular case that was published in 1916 by the French doctors, you imagine that Campylo de Juni was probably the GI cause here, um, in those war conditions, um, with the food that they were being served. Um, that also does result in worse prognosis, FYI, HIV, other types of uh, various viruses can be there as well. But the reason we mention this is because on boards and for you to know as well, uh, there might've been some sort of precipitating URI or GI infection that they might present or that you would see with your own patient.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, over the next few weeks, uh, Dr. Hussein and I are going to be covering highly board-relevant topics. You know, we always cover board-relevant topics. But um, we're actually assembling a list of topics that are, uh, we would say, more rare, I guess, in practice. So, like, for the next two weeks, we're not going to really talk about appendicitis. We're going to talk about these type of cases, like um, iron toxicity, scuba diving stuff, Guillain-Barre, and then that dreaded many years disease. Remember that one? Okay. So, it <laughs> comes up so much. Dr. Say and I have been perusing the list of questions. We see these things come up a lot. They love them. They love these topics. They love it. Yeah. And um, it's because it's easily recognizable and it's rare enough that they know they can nail people on these questions because you don't see it clinically enough to know what to do with it.
1: The beauty of it, though, is if you do put just minimal time into it, and by that time I mean just listening to this pod, you'll be able to answer these pretty Absolutely. easily. because. Absolutely. One of the things we found in our research is for these more rare conditions, there are really only three or four things they want you to know, Um, and that's what we'll go through. Right, right. Um,
0: So, yeah, as Dr. Usain said, choice B was most cases are idiopathic. That's not true. As he said in the question stem, it is always going to mention some type of preceding illness. It's not going to be, hey, I came in, and now I can't move my legs. Um, It is going to be some type of history before that. What's the timing here? Days to weeks. Wide range of symptoms. As we already talked about, the three most classic things are what, Dr. Hussain?
1: So three most classic things that you're going to see is, in terms of the presentation, is going to be legs and up. Just think about that. (laughs) Presents in the legs, but 10% of the time is going to be the face and arms, but it's going to be the legs. 20% have respiratory distress, severe respiratory distress. That's big. That's big. That's big. More on that later. Yep. We can see facial nerve palsies and oropharyngeal weakness in greater than 50%. And then, we mentioned this before, but 90% with absent or weak deep tendon reflexes. Remember what we talked about, paresthesias can be common, but you're not gonna have sensory loss. Nope. And while you can have pain in the back and legs at the nerve roots, they're not gonna muddy the waters by presenting this on the boards. They're not gonna be telling you this person's having back pain as well because they don't want you to think it's is more of like a central cause. What else, Dr. Briggs?
0: Yeah, you know, other things that can come up, dysautonomia, these are patients that are coming in with ranges in their heart rate, tachycardia, bradycardia, etc. Um, this is found in more than 70% of patients. So think like sympathomimetic changes that can happen. And of course, the progression we already talked about, usually it's a presentation of less than 10 days, you're starting to develop that course of illness. And then it progresses to full symptomatology by a month three to four weeks nice. um, here are the things Guillain-Barre Stroll is not associated with this is big and this is high yield because if you see this in the question stem you need to be thinking about other things um, and in real life too. think about your differential if you see this stuff so bowel and bladder dysfunction and for that matter as Dr. Hussein was saying with the bowel and bladder dysfunction Back pain. Um, you know, when we think bowel and bladder dysfunction, back pain, every ER doc would say cauda quina or conus medullaris. Right. You're correct. That is not Guillain-Barre. guillain does not have bowel and bladder dysfunction, or at least definitely not on the boards and rarely in real life.
1: And that's why it's critical that question stem that Dr. Briggs put for D, incontinence is not typically seen. That's one of the reasons we put that there.
0: Absolutely. Uh, fever, not going to happen. Remember, this is not infection. It's an inflammatory Polyneuropathy. So if you have fever and these motory sensory things, you actually need to think about another high yield board condition. That's transverse myelitis.
1: It's a great, great point,
0: especially in HIV patients or post-infectious patients as a classic, classic viral post-viral kind of uh, condition that patients can get. I actually saw one last week. So how do we diagnose this, Dr. Hussain? I'm sure that the white count is really helpful here. You just get a white <laughs> count. <laughs> um, we look check for leukocytosis and then we pan scan them. What do you think?
1: Right, right. Yeah, it sounds great. You know, the white count is helpful here because it's not elevated usually. <laughs> <laughs> it's reassuring. Labs aren't helpful here, um, and it's really going to be your LP that they might present. You got to know this. You got to know this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What are you going to be seeing with the protein levels, Dr. Briggs?
0: Well, on this episode of I am things that only matter on the boards for EM, elevated CSF protein.
1: (laughs) Pretty much. And that's it. That's it. It's not found all the time. You're looking at around 66% of the patients or so, uh, depending on when you catch them. Mm -hmm. And that amount can increase later on. Mm -hmm. However... uh, they're going to present those elevated csf protein uh, on the lp
0: findings so you have to know this buzzword unfortunately and it really has to do with the fact that you have this elevated protein in the csf but a normal white count normal cells and it's going to be the albuminocytologic dissociation and that my friend is a harder word than it looks i want you to say out loud right now when you're listening to our podcast that word and if you're in a public space i hope you are Standing, standing in line at Starbucks with your AirPods in. Tongue twister. So it's actually funny when I have my AirPods in and I'm like talking to someone on the phone. I get so many looks from people like older generation who don't know like how AirPods work and they think that I'm just like talking to myself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like that guy's going to end up in the ER. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> he needs an IVC. All right. <laughs> so other things that are diagnostics but they're never done in the ED. They just may ask you like, hey, what's the most accurate test? Electrodiagnostics. So like an EMG or an ENG, that kind of thing. That stuff is very accurate. It'll never be done in the ED. I want you to email us. We will pay you money. If you email us and tell us a time that someone has come downstairs and done I know. an electrodiagnostic in the ED.
1: Right, right, exactly.
0: It's kind of like oh. scorpion bites for pancreatitis.
1: Yeah. I yeah.
0: want you to email us if you actually have a case of scorpions causing pancreatitis. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hey, we're big in other countries, all right? <laughs> and
0: that's true, in America. All right, what about MRI and CT? We always like to get those in these neuro patients. What do you think? Negative. Yeah, so it sure show some, like, just inflammation around, like, the fecal sac and all that kind of stuff. Who cares? Um, yeah. It's not going to tell us anything. So you expect those to be negative, and actually the question stem will tell you that sometimes. It'll say, like, oh, yeah, they've had this, like, weakness, whatever, like that, and they got a CT head in the ED, code stroke, and it was negative. Right. Uh, that's big. They're telling you, oh, hey, that's not it.
1: Right.
0: Hey, so here's some bonus material. Let's do a bonus bomb. Let's do it. Now it's time for a bonus bomb. So, Dr. hussein I'm going to put you on the spot right here. What if I told you someone had Guillain Barre kind of symptoms, like they had motor loss, Kay. but for some weird reason, it was all kind of in the upper extremities, and they also had like trouble with eye movement and they couldn't they were like ataxic what would you think that is would you still think it's Guillain-Barre
1: I think what you're trying to get at at here (laughs) is Miller Fisher syndrome
0: oh yes indubitably
1: indubitably
0: yes yes so this thing's super (laughs) rare like when we were doing the research for this podcast there's like less than a few paragraphs on it just on up to date (laughs) (laughs) which blows my mind because I thought this was hammered to me in med school like everybody knows it i know, I know. <laughs> super rare anyway there's like 20 variants of gamberet i already looked it up we don't have to know any of them just know no, this there's one so many just variants. know this one
1: yeah
0: just in case you like just i'm telling you this because on your board question what if you like see like the upper extremity stuff and the eye stuff and you're like oh well that's not gamberet because dr hussein dr briggs told us that that was ascending from the legs up so just keep that in mind let's go over the management now what is the most important thing with these patients dr hussein
1: yeah, and what you need to know for the boards is they're going to be asking you a couple key numbers, and the numbers like you're not going to have to know necessarily like exact protein levels in CSF. You'll just no. to recognize it's elevated, you know CSF protein, right? The one number though that you do need to know uh, are going to or the two key numbers rather I should say that you need to know are going to be your uh, forced vital capacity and your NIF because respiratory failure is where they're going to get you on. So remember, thirty percent of these patients can have respiratory failure that needs ventilator support.
0: Hey, louder for the back, louder for the back. (laughs)
1: 30% (laughs) of these patients have respiratory failure needing ventilation support. That's why you need to know this for your boards, you need to know this for real life, because you need to know the impending signs of respiratory failure Not when you're called over and the patient is not breathing or now they're altered because they have not been ventilating appropriately. Yeah, that's suboptimal. What are the key numbers to know, Dr. Briggs? Yeah, the big
0: numbers to know here, first of all, are the forced vital capacity. If you have a number less than 20 milliliters per kilogram, that's concerning. Right. Obviously, we're doing milliliters per kilogram because everyone has a different vital capacity depending on their weight. And then the maximum inspiratory pressure, which misleading, I know, is actually called a NIF.
1: <laughs> yeah, NIF. And they might
0: ask you NIF. Yeah. yeah. The NIF is a negative inspiratory force. It's also basically known as a maximum inspiratory pressure. That's less than 30 centimeters water. And those are two massive board relevant things you need to know. Absolutely. So let's talk about what we do for these patients. So those two numbers alone automatically tell you I'm going to have to intubate this patient. There's nothing you can do to prevent them from getting intubated, basically. The treatment we're going to talk about in a minute that you're not going to be able to do in the ED will not take place until after they're intubated. Correct. So there's nothing you can do to reverse their disease process. And don't you dare say steroids. (laughs) (laughs) Don't say it. Don't say say it. it. Because every single person I've ever talked about Game Ray to says, Oh, isn't that steroids? Because we always throw steroids at these autoimmune things. All right, so where we're going to admit these people, I just, even if you're not intubating them, everyone goes to the ICU. Every single one of these patients goes to the ICU. They need every few hours vital capacity and NIF checks. And another thing on top of the inspiratory stuff is they could be sitting there texting, but what if they're not controlling the secretions? I know that sounds obvious when I say it. Any bulbar dysfunction or swallowing problems are ominous. They are concerning. Um, they actually did a study. This is really interesting. I think this was cool. They've done multiple studies combining, like, hey, what are the high-risk symptoms if you can't do, like, a NIF or a forced vital capacity? Um, simple things like the inability to lift head off the bed, less than seven-day presentation, so rapid onset of gambre, vital capacity less than 60% predicted. There is an 85% risk they're going to be intubated. That's, yeah. Huge. Yeah, that's um, huge. That's higher than, you know, your COPD and asthmatics. That's huge. Right. Um, so keep in mind, one more time inability to lift head less than seven day onset of symptoms or a vital capacity less than 60% predicted you don't have to memorize these for boards at all but this is clinically relevant just to identify these patients they have a high intubation rate and that's why of course the answer choice c was wrong respiratory distress is rarely seen that's not true it's actually quite common 30% of your patients are going to need to be intubated right that's crazy That's huge so what are the other things you do here? Just some side notes here, just so you know. Autonomic dysfunction, and you know, of course, you're managing sympathometic, parasympathetic kind of picture, dysautonomia. That's a much more detailed, exact conversation about pressors, no pressors, heart rate support, no support, that sort of thing. Pain control is going to be through gabapentin or carbamazepine. So remember, it's kind of a neuropathic sort of pain, which is difficult to treat. And then finally, the definitive treatment here, which is IVIG and plasmapheresis. We don't do that in the ED. You have a pretty fantastic ED if you can initiate that, that early. <laughs> Um, that has to be done within four weeks of presentation. Both of them together are not more beneficial than one being alone, but both of them have been pretty equal, you know, as solo treatments. Um, the whole reason we do it is that patients recover sooner when treated early and about 60% have full recovery in one year. Um, it's not that good, but
1: (laughs) oftentimes when it comes to boards, you might be asked a question stem where they tell you what is the best next step yes and you might see ivig or plasma listed and you might think oh i'm doing great i remember this this is definitely young this is what i need to give the patient but they might throw in there measuring the patient's nif or measuring the Mm -hmm. patient's force vital capacity Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that is the next best thing you should do rather than ivig or plasma that's why it's important to know the different steps and also as a sidebar when you do intubate, you should avoid succinylcholine during intubation because that can, in these cases, cause severe hypokalemia, just FYI. But again, yeah. that's another way um, from boards that you don't know that they might ask this question as the next best step. Absolutely. Hey, let's wrap this up. I think folks got a nice history lesson and they also are going to be able to crush this for the boards and also clinical practice.
0: Hey, hashtag never forget stroll. <laughs>
1: Hey, you know, that's an important point. I really feel for my boy, Dr. Stroll here. He was just left out of the history books. And he was the second author on the original paper. I did a little bit of nerdy deep dive to find out why. <laughs> they, they don't exactly know why. However, oh, in subsequent no. literature reports, um, when you know, these, these individuals were recognized, they suspect it was because Stroll apparently stopped being a neurologist who and so i think his own peers just kind of left him out after that (laughs) so the lesson of the story is the lesson of the story is don't don't burn bridges don't burn bridges in your subspecialty
0: hashtag uh truth always comes out (laughs) all right that's another bomb delivered remember to sign up on our website at emboardbombs.com we have told you our twitter handle it's at emboardbombs always drop us an or review as well the reviews are super helpful make us more popular Thanks again for listening after you're saying any last words.
1: No, that's it. Hashtag stroll.
0: We're just going to stroll out of here. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) See you next time.